The following program was pre-recorded and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we're working to save the classroom so that we can save the country. K-12 education is the playing field where the battle is on for the future of our country. And as our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, succinctly stated, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. And boy, are we seeing that play out right before our very eyes. We are. (laughs) So, Abigail, we are excited again to have a wonderful guest with us. And I'll let you go ahead and introduce her. Yes, Katrin Wigfall is with us again. She is, just as a reminder, she is a policy fellow at the Center for the American Experiment. She has an extensive background in education, both as kind of boots on the ground as a teacher and now working in education policy. And again, she's reading all of these bills and attending all of, she's attending boring (laughs) legislative hearings, so you don't have to. So we are all so very grateful, Katrin, that you are here with us again. Yeah. Thanks, ladies. Yeah. So last week, we talked a lot about the social studies standards and the new ethnic studies. Um, This week, we want to switch over and let's start by talking about one of the concerns in the in the bill in the omnibus bill that was signed, and then let's end our show with some positives. Yes, we want to we want to <laughs> end on a positive note here. So okay, so we're going to start by talking about some of the changes that were made in this legislation to the K three discipline policies. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit, Catherine? Yes. So the education omnibus bill uh, included several discipline policy changes, and one of them is a ban on K-3 suspensions. So if a student is in kindergarten through third grade, they cannot be suspended for one school day or more. There are exceptions for students receiving special ed services, uh, but that was a huge change toward uh, discipline policy and uh, frankly has been a, a provision that has appeared in past bills but never got uh, enough momentum to get across the finish line and mm-hmm. it did and uh, there are school leaders who are very concerned that narrowing school district authority to dismiss students for disciplinary reasons uh, will really have unintended consequences on not only the students but school climate, safety, and resources. So that is probably the the biggest discipline policy change, and it builds off of a uh, pre-K ban that was passed in, in 2021. Mm-hmm. And some people might be listening and thinking, well, Certainly, there couldn't be too many suspensions, you know, from kindergarten through third grade. Um, and, and you would like to think not, and there probably weren't a whole lot of them. But when we talk with teachers, you know, we mm-hmm. just had the St. Paul Public School teacher on just a few months ago who used to work at Harding High School. Um, I think about Erin Benner, who worked in the lower school uh, age group, the elementary school age group. And you'd be surprised. I have interviewed teachers that coming from public schools where because of the b- basic changes in discipline policies in general, 
the teacher's hands are tied. And so there is actually a lot more antisocial behavior happening in kids' grades, mm-hmm. kindergarten through third grade, than there used to be. And, um, and that's kind of the concerning part is that, you know, it's one thing to not be able to discipline them, but then you could still have them take a break and say, let's, let's have you stay home for a day or, you know, do, do something different in the, in the school building. Um, but to not even be able to have that, um, option as a school leader, I feel like their hands are completely tied and, you mentioned before we got started, Katrin, that the idea is that they want to be doing more restorative type um, discipline policies rather than exclusionary. And the word exclusionary is a, one of those new words, right? <laughs> exclusionary simply means let's ask this kid to step out in the hall for a few minutes. Um, and that's not being done much anymore. I've had teachers telling me that they have to actually move all the students in the class and leave the one that's having the temper tantrum alone to throw books, desks, what have you, while they have to actually exit all the rest of the kids and go to another classroom. So that's the extent to which they would go to not, um, have disciplinary measures that they would consider to be exclusionary. So I think we have to really um, define our language too, because nobody wants kids to be excluded. Um, But yet some of the things that they label exclusionary is just plain old fashioned. Let's have some standards that we expect of our students Mm -hmm. and we're going to make sure that they follow them. Um, So maybe you can address that, that uh, change in discipline as well. Yes. So along with the ban on K-3 suspensions, there is a ban on seclusion from birth through third grade that will begin September 2024. And then by February 2024, the bill includes recommendations to urgently end seclusion for all grades. So that type of approach, like you mentioned, where, uh, you know, maybe you go outside of the classroom or uh, that sort of thing. And there's also a change now that um, there will be what's called recess for all. So recess can no longer be used um, <laughs> as, a, as a discipline measure, taking away recess. So uh, there are many school leaders who mm-hmm. feel like their hands are tied yeah. on this. And, and yeah. it's almost kind of a slap in the face to them that, you know, their discretion on how to uh, discipline students isn't up to par. And mm-hmm. So especially when it, when you have incidents that obviously you know, aren't uh, immediate serious threat to the child or others, but incidents such as you know, sexual harassment, bullying, um, drug possession, theft, or, or even threats to students or, or to teachers. And so those types of, of discipline issue areas, a principal can no longer use suspension or, or, or seclusion um, for younger students. Mm-hmm. And so... Obviously, like you said, that we want to use non-traditional discipline approaches such as relationship building and uh, addressing the root causes of misbehavior. I mean, I, as a teacher, found these to be very powerful lovers, mm-hmm. and, and they helped change the behavior of a handful of my students so we didn't have to get to the point of, of right. suspension. Mm-hmm. And, but that's why it should be localized and up to the discretion of school leaders, and uh, now it's, it's a statewide ban. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yes. And I, you know, I think I should make that point too, given that I was, you know, being critical of these exclusionary policies. I agree with you. The The best discipline is a good relationship between the teacher and the student and that mutual respect that goes back and forth. Um, but there are always going to be those kids that um, need more than that. And, mm-hmm. and let's you know, be very honest. Teachers are Teachers, while I absolutely believe that the goal of each teacher is to have a solid and uh, productive relationship with each of their students, even the students that are either very Mm -hmm. difficult or going through a very difficult time. But here's what teachers are not. Teachers are not psychologists. They are not therapists. They are not you know, lunch workers to just, you know, give if it's, are they hungry? Well, we, you know, we can do some of that. And I, I believe teachers absolutely are trying, Mm -hmm. but it's also not, this is a one-on-one therapy or tutoring session. So teachers, we have to look at all of these policies in the context of, yes, that is absolutely the goal is to empower teachers and to use the most minimal, you know, amounts of correction first and the goal is always to have a productive you know to bring that child back Mm -hmm. into the Mm -hmm. classroom and learn Mm -hmm. however they also have in many cases another 15 to 25 kids that they also are responsible to teach and in the end teachers are being in theory paid by the state to actually teach so I know that we've talked on the show a lot about we're really asking teachers to wear more hats than one mm-hmm. they are they are physically able to do. They are not able to wear all of these hats with another, you know, 26 kids in the classroom and two, they're not qualified. Mm-hmm. There very well may be situations that are absolutely, you know, this, you know, many instances it's not just a quote unquote bad child. It's there's these things going at home. It's behaviors that have not been modeled or taught. It's all of these things. And those are all very true. But a teacher is not a therapist and it's not a counseling session. This is supposed to be teaching either history or reading. And we have to look at all of these policies, understanding the very real limitations. Again, both, you know, the physical and logistic, you know, limitations of a teacher with so many kids in a classroom. And then what is their actual goal? It is it is to teach learning and are learning we, and are we goal. enabling mm-hmm. them to do that? And then, you know, whatever support, you know, we're, I think schools actually provide an awful lot of other types of support. Most have counselors, yeah. but teachers are not trained as psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're excellent. Most have really great people skills, but that is not their training. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, let's let's switch over to some positive news coming out of that <laughs> omnibus bill, and um, the first one is the reading literacy legislation. Tell us about that, Katrin. Yes, this uh, in my eyes, this is uh, the biggest win of the education omnibus bill. Um, within the education bill is called uh, the Read Act, and that has made uh, evidence-based reading instruction a requirement for school districts, for teachers, and for teacher preparation programs. Mm -hmm. So that is so important because over 52% of Minnesota's third graders can't read at grade level. And we have seen on national assessments 
uh, fourth grade reading scores showing just as poor of performance. Um, They're actually the lowest that they have been in Minnesota in 30 years. And the fourth grade reading scores on national assessments are also below the national average. Mm. So that is that is a that's a first for Minnesota. We typically can say that we're above the national average. However, when you break down performance by student groups, it, it shows that much work remains. But we we are not strong in reading, and so. Many of us uh, sounded the alarm on Minnesota's struggle Mm -hmm. to help students become literate years ago, Mm -hmm. but this statewide overhaul of literacy education to to really ensure that not only are students um, receiving education or receiving reading instruction in a way that allows them to become literate, but that teachers are prepared to do so, uh, it's really a landmark investment. That's excellent. So one of the things that went through my mind when I heard evidence-based is, you know, I don't know if you've been listening to um, Emily Hannaford's Sold a Story podcast yes. series. And, um, you know, she talks about the evidence-based reading instruction, but she's talking about evidence-based as in neurological evidence in how children learn to read, not necessarily education department type research that would um, actually stress a different type of reading instruction. So is there some distinction in this legislation um, that recognizes when they say evidence-based, are they talking mainly of neurological evidence-based or are they talking about education research? You know, that is one area where the language could have been stronger. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it is a win. Um, I would, I, I wish that there were, there were a couple of amendments to try to make the language stronger just because of your point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't included, but evidence-based instructional strategies are defined. So they do have to focus on uh, phonological and phonemic awareness. Phonics, decoding, spelling, fluency, vocabulary, oral language, and comprehension. So uh, identifying those strategies is good. Um, Most reading strategies will say, oh, yeah, we have phonics. Right. The problem is is how... how, systematic is that throughout the reading instruction. You can mention that you have it, and if it gets taught once, that's really not implementing it uh, appropriately and effectively. Mm -hmm. So we'll see uh, how school districts uh, implement these strategies into their literacy plans, which they have to publish, and they have to choose uh, a literacy program. I think it's three um, programs that the Department of Ed has approved. But outside of defining what the strategies include, they also include important language on what it's not. And so they do specifically name the three queuing system, which has been around for Mm -hmm. a while Mm -hmm. as an ineffective reading instruction Mm -hmm. strategy. So that is very important language Mm -hmm. because there was concern that evidence-based would be a loophole to still include that very ineffective strategy where basically students are taught to use visual cues when they're attempting to read an un unknown words. Mm-hmm. So that has been named as ineffective. Good. Can't, you can't be used. Scratch that. So good. that is good. That 
That is really good news, actually, because mm-hmm. that, that was my biggest concern. I wasn't celebrating as much because I was concerned that they would do just what you suggested. <laughs> so it's nice <laughs> to know that they actually listed the queuing strategy as something that they should not do. Um, Absolutely. The other... Well, wait, one more question before we switch over to the other positive. Um, how does our legislation regarding reading literacy, I hope you know the answer to this question, compared to Virginia's where Governor Youngkin got that through and um, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, but I can certainly find out. Yeah. Um, I will say that comparing Minnesota's uh, reading literacy bill to other states because, you know, there are a handful now who have focused in on reading literacy. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't go as far as some states such as, you know, Mississippi and Florida where we've seen really big jumps in, in their reading literacy scores mm-hmm. um, because it removes, uh, it, while earlier versions of this bill, a reading literacy bill has been trying to be passed for a number of sessions, but earlier versions included a third grade retention piece. So mm-hmm. if a student is not reading at grade level by third grade, then they have to uh, repeat third grade Mississippi mm. has that in place, and they have kind of given that policy the nod uh, as far as being a contributor to the state's significant reading growth in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, and other states have that retention piece in play as well. Minnesota's does not, and I think it's inter- it'll be interesting to see the accountability because the bill does state that a student in you know kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. Um, has to master foundational reading skills, but it stops there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. you know, what happens no or if else. <laughs> those skills aren't mastered? Mm. I mean, they have to continue receiving evidence-based instructional strategies, but other states have added on to that and have said, okay, if these foundational reading skills aren't mastered, here's here's the next step. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll uh, we'll see what that looks like for Minnesota, but definitely a step in the right direction. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure what Virginia's looks like. Okay, very good. Thank you for that that answer. Uh, the other positive piece that came out of the legislation was a personal finance and civics class for graduation. Tell us about that. Yes. So students beginning high school next year for the 2024 school year will be required to complete a personal finance course in either 10th, 11th, or 12th grade in order to graduate. And Minnesota is actually the 20th state to require a personal finance class for graduation. Hmm. And there's some hope that this class will help high schoolers really understand the consequences of financial commitments that they'll be asked to take on and make once they exit their K-12 journey and kind of help them figure out what they can handle and and that sort of thing. Because as I'm sure you know, student debt is a huge issue Mm -hmm. facing our country, Um, credit card debt and just all these other areas uh, students don't know how to write a check, balance a checkbook. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm excited that this finance class will will be a, a good thing for high school students. And then uh, additionally, students will have to take a course in government and citizenship in order to graduate. So this is, uh, I think, c- could be another positive thing, especially given uh, eighth grade test results on, on national assessments in civics. Mm-hmm. Um 
the 2022 scores, they don't break them down by state, but the 2022 scores uh, were largely unchanged compared to scores in 1998 when the civics, National Civics Assessment was first given. So, um, you know, students can definitely learn more in that area, and I think it will, uh, if taught correctly, help prepare them to be engaged uh, members of society. Mm-hmm. As you point out, if it's taught correctly, <laughs> that is kind of a big if, isn't it? Because once again, it it lays the foundation for for someone to either come in and shift them in one direction or the other. And the idea we always hope is that um, students would be exposed to kind of a broad spectrum of ideas and that they would at least be taught to respect the Constitution and the the three branches of our government. And, you know, there's a lot that is so good about our country. And, of course, the only fear is that this civics course would used as be simply used as a method to be able to bludgeon, yep. you know, the, the American founding. And, and it would just be yeah, almost like another arm of, of the ethnic studies strand. We do have to be vigilant against that, and I think it's important for parents to know their rights when it comes to the instructional materials and curricula that's used to teach these subject areas. There is Minnesota state law currently in place that says a school district has to have a procedure in place for parents to review the instructional materials their children receive, and if the parents object to those materials, the school leadership has to provide alternative materials. Now, the school doesn't have to buy a whole new curriculum, um, but it does give parents a, a say and um, I think is an important right for families to know that they can exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, as we're kind of coming down on our last, you know, five minutes of our show, I wonder if we should take a little bit of a slight turn. Um, You talk about that the parents can exercise this right. I think parents are not very aware of their rights. And we have mentioned in the past that you can go and request to see curriculum. There are FOIA requests. Um, And I, I thought that there was actually even a law that says that any survey that is going to be done um, on students needs to be um, maybe an alert needs to be sent out ahead of time to parents, Mm -hmm. letting them know of this upcoming survey and that they can opt out if they want to. They can go in and look at the survey beforehand if they wish to. Uh, Could you elaborate on some of these options that parents have? Yes, good, uh, good thing to talk about because as you mentioned, parents are busy and they, and they just maybe don't know. So the Minnesota state law I mentioned is for instructional materials and parents have an opportunity to do that for any subject area. Um, and then what you mentioned with opting out of survey is also um, protected by Minnesota law, but federal law as well. Oh, and so that's an important right that parents have. They can opt their student out of uh, surveys under um, under federal law, so it's mm-hmm. called the Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment, PPRA. Okay. And as you mentioned, the school has to notify 
parents that the survey is coming up and, and students actually have to be informed that they don't have to take the survey. Mm. And I know there was a school district that got in trouble for that yeah. uh, because they told the student, don't tell you know your parents uh, about <sighs> this survey. And so um, that was over an equity survey, actually. Oh, my goodness. That an outside group was, was brought in to conduct for the Sartell St. Stephen School District. Hmm. Um, and so they can opt out of surveys. They can also opt their child out of any um, sex ed health education. Okay. So that the survey opt out and the health education opt out does have to be done every year. There should be a form on a school district website that parents can fill out and then turn into their principal or if there's a designated person to receive that. So that's also something else for parents to consider because sometimes parents uh, want to approach that subject area using their own resources and, and that sort of thing at home and and um, and maybe don't want their child to receive that education in, in that particular area from the school. Hmm. You know, one thing that that reminds me of when you talk about opting out of a sex ed curriculum, um, we have a common friend, Oradola, and um, she tried to opt her oldest son out of a sex ed curriculum. And then when she was submitting alternatives that she was going to do, it was really interesting because the school district kept saying, well, no, we're not going to accept that. We're not going to accept that. And I actually never heard how that ended. I need to circle back with her and find out. But she was reaching out and asking if I knew of some. And so I thought, well, okay, if they want to opt out because it's maybe comprehensive sex ed, versus maybe a more traditional sex ed. But then the school district has the right to say, to to approve the alternative. Is that the case or were they overstepping? I would love to talk to her more about that because how state law is written, it says, as I mentioned, that the parent can object and the school has to work to make reasonable arrangements for alternative instruction. The alternative instruction can be provided by the parent. Okay. Uh, if the alternative instruction offered by the school board does not meet the concerns of that parent. And that language is in state law as well. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure why they're, you know, saying what they are, but mm-hmm. what it sounds like, you know, she certainly has the right to offer alternative instruction if what the school is offering still doesn't address her concerns. Mm, that's really good. Okay, I have to circle back with her. Her son actually just graduated this year, so she somehow must have worked it out with them. But <laughs> I, like I said, I never heard the end of the story, and I just thought that seemed um, like maybe the school district was overstepping, and it sounds like maybe they were. Um, and I think that's what parents need to understand is that there's all these laws that are written to protect parent rights, parental rights, and students and what have you. But if schools aren't following them and parents aren't aware or maybe they're thinking, well, maybe I don't fully understand it, they're less likely to push back. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just, you know, I think we want to empower parents to be the advocates for their children that they need to be, be aware of what the laws say. And um, so thank you, Katrin, for really being able to highlight, especially both instruction and surveys. Those are big ones. And then the sex ed curriculum, those three are, are probably the top three that parents are concerned about.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And parents, you are the primary educator of your child. Yes, <laughs> so I don't love ever that. forget that. <laughs> yes, that is a great way for us to, to bring these last two podcasts to a close. So thank you so much, Katrin, for joining us um, on the show the last couple of weeks. And um, we wish you the best. And I'm sure we'll be bringing you back again next year to be talking some about about these topics again. But for now, enjoy your break from yes. all of the <laughs> late yes. night legislative yes. sessions. Yes, yes. So go find a nice lake to sit on and have fun with your husband and and child. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. You can listen to this podcast or any other of our podcasts at savetheclassroom.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And you can also find us on Spotify and um, all the other podcasts. podcasts. Yes. (laughs) Have a great night, everyone.